Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Loosehead Podcast with me, Jeff Neville. Today I'm on the phone with Ben Mercer, the author of the book Fringes. Ben, how are you getting on? Yeah, really good, Jeff. Thanks for having me. So where in the world are you right now? Um, I'm at my family's place, which is just outside Bath. Uh, me and my sister and her flatmate, <laughs> we're all here. Um, yeah, hunkered down together in the countryside. And how are you surviving the epidemic? Yeah, it's all right. It's obviously... You have some days where you feel like you're going to go a bit stir crazy and drive into the supermarket. It's like a real treat. But yeah, apart from that, like, I, you know, I can't complain. Really. Right. Getting dressed up to go to Tesco seems to be a common occurrence. I think. <laughs> yeah, you know, putting a full face on and getting out there. It probably suits you at the moment in a strange way. And I know this sounds weird to say, but having a book to promote and people have plenty of time to read, it's probably helpful for you at the moment in, in a strange way. I'd say, yeah, that's definitely been the case. I mean, everyone's got way more time to, um, you know, to look at stuff or to, to sort of, yeah, like you said, read and watch things that they've been putting putting aside. And yeah, it's definitely been a sort of big period of discovery for the book. So it has helped. I think. Fringes offers a very niche viewpoint. Not many books have been written from kind of the the journeyman point of view. I know there was... Um, confessions of a rugby mercenary before and there's a couple of others but did you find it difficult to get the book published yeah well um I, i've actually self-published it so confessions of a rugby mercenary was a was a bit of a like model for, for me it was really helpful I, i'd read it years ago and i reread it and took a real look at how he kind of structured his his own story um and it's a really good book if you haven't read it like you should definitely check it out if you're interested in french rugby in particular but um yeah, it's the, that was the advice I had from uh, publishers and agents. They're like, look, you know, the, the kind of most helpful guy, he said, oh, your writing's pretty good. He was like, you could definitely improve it. That's when I gave him the kind of first um, hundred pages or something like that. And uh, it was like a first draft. And uh, But he was like, look, you know, rugby's quite a small book market and it tends to only come out for kind of big name, big name guys. So it's going to be quite hard to sell. And for you, like self-publishing, it might be a good route. But I thought that in a way, like what he said gave me a bit of confidence, but also that because I did have a different perspective and because every other book was a big name guy, I kind of tried to make that a bit of a feature of mine. So it was like, look, you know, this isn't like all the other ones. And how has it been taken up by the rugby world at the moment? Oh, yeah, it's been great. Um, for, I mean, I published it in December, and like, and a few people bought it, like people I knew, and you know, I spread the word a little bit, but I was really struggling, like you know, kind of um, just on Twitter, you know, trying to get emailing people, trying to get them interested, and things like that, sending out a couple of copies, and uh, because I didn't launch with any reviews, like it didn't look. Uh, I, I can understand anyone's reticence to buy it when it's got no reviews and you don't know what it's like, and it's this kind of different story, but more recently, as it's kind of got a, a load of reviews behind it, it, it got a bit of traction, sort of climbing up the kind of rugby book chart, and then it got up to the top top spot in rugby rugby books on Amazon, and I and I tweeted like a kind of I just like was surprised to see it there, and I tweeted um, about it, and Brian Moore randomly he must have come across it. He doesn't follow me, but he he retweeted it, and after that it just went nuts. So I started getting those messages people sending me, you know, their reviews and how they really liked it. It's been great. Well, if you're happy to, we'll chat a little bit about it. 
Fringes goes through a number of highs and lows of your time in France. And the book kind of reads the same as if the reader themselves are finishing up a good season. And it gives the feeling of contentment. I know it's not all as it seems, but it finishes up in the sunshine. You've won a trophy. You're having a good time with a few beers and a few friends. Now that you're outside the bubble and you look back on it, do you miss it? That's what you miss, really, is it's being in the group. I, I, when I got home after leaving it, I was quite happy to come back to the UK. And I felt really relieved that I didn't have to go back to, to go and do that again. But it's definitely the kind of walk in every day to training or, you know, even into the gym and high fives all round. Because you, you're just not going to find that environment again in another way. It, it's not going to happen. So, and I think that's pretty common amongst other people I've spoken to. It's like, it's not necessarily the kind of playing the, the game. It's being, it's that you're all in it together with a group of you. You know, I think that's the thing that, that you miss the most. You went over to Rouen and you were almost sold a dream to bring this team up into the top tier of professional rugby in France. Was that dream everything you were told it would be? Yeah, well, we, we went over. So the first year was really kind of, it was completely new for everybody. So they, they'd been promoted the year before, but they were still like very much kind of part-time, you know, two, two nights a week training, um, and then we were kind of brought there as the first sort of pros, I suppose. And although they, they had this idea that they wanted to build and do, you know, and, and do what you say, um, at that point with our coach, like the kind of, we, we were sort of hedging our bets a bit. And it's like, look, you know, go over here, we'll do a good job. And then you know, it might be that we can stay here. It might be that there's somewhere else we can go to one of the kind of bigger teams. But I think after, particularly after the second year, the coach realised that actually with a lot of the French teams, there's loads of politics, there's loads of, you know, old boys or, you know, someone's uncle's the president or, you know, <laughs> there's all these kind of ties that you're never going to be able to change or really have much influence over. Whereas because this was a new team, there was loads of opportunity to shape it um, in a way that you wouldn't get to a, a kind of a Pro D2 uh, team or, you know, a sort of big old name that have fallen on at hard times. So, then it became like right, let's let's really go after it and let's kind of build this. And yeah, it was um, it was an exciting thing to be a part of for sure. Playing professional sport, it's the dream for many people. And you wake up in the morning, your day revolves around eating well, training. You play some rugby, and you you pretty much have the day to yourself. And while you experience this, you also experienced what it's like to be a professional in the lower tiers of the game, where you were expected pretty much to take care of yourself to a degree. Um, your career seemed to have depended largely on the emotions of the coach or the club higher-ups on a given day. One of the things I was trying to get across in the book is like, there are guys playing top level and there are guys that are playing low level. And actually, for a lot of those guys, you are going to work. It's not, it's not necessarily a sort of joyous thing. You know, you can kind of, people can kind of get bored of anything or can find anything like a bit kind of grueling even if that is going and playing rugby and and running around with with a load of your mates because actually quite a lot of the time you're knackered or you know um you don't you don't feel like it on that day or what you're doing is repetitive or you know so it you're right like it's loads of fun i just wanted to make clear to people reading it that actually you know there are those conflicting feelings about it like within the sport uh and yeah you're, you're right i think 
there's um, there's definitely a case of uh, you know hopefully the, hopefully the coach has got out on the right side of bed that day or <laughs> um, there's a lot of luck involved in terms of you know who's got a job where and if they believe in you or not and that's why you see certain players kind of follow certain coaches around because coaches maybe they like and trust a guy from a previous team so they go and sign him and that makes a lot of sense but it just means that there's that kind of personal relationship element there's that bit of luck that's involved in any kind of um, yeah in any playing career really there was a number of things that stuck out to me in the book but I suppose of the four seasons you talk about the fourth season probably sticks out to me most in that fourth season you experienced delayed pay you were asked to pay to stay in the hotel the night before a game you were actually playing in a season where promotion was pretty much impossible how did that affect your mindset trying to play the game? Yeah, I think that, that was the sort of that was the problem really. So before the fourth season, it was very much like right, next year's the year we're going for it. Um, we'll we'll get a load more guys in, so we've got a you know deeper squad, um, you know big push, all, all the rest. And before we actually got back for preseason, they released the groups for the for the league structure. And, we probably haven't got time to talk about how complicated this system is. It's, yeah, I found it. I found it difficult to understand at times, but <laughs> I, I suppose kind of what just stuck out most for me was that you couldn't get promoted. Essentially. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So there's one pool of teams that are all playing to get promoted, and we weren't in it. So you know, the club were very much like, "Come back here, you know, um, see, you know, and it'll get sorted out. Don't worry about it." And when we got back after a couple of weeks, it became quite clear that this wasn't going to get sorted out. So what we then had was a sort of pointless season almost where everyone had been signed to do the specific job. And because we couldn't do it, I mean, the season started in a quite a damp way. Like we lost the sort of first couple of games we weren't expected to do. And then it became a bit of a sort of, we're, we're being asked to do more with less. And it, it felt very pointless because it was like, right, well, we're holding up our end of the bargain. It really feels like you're not. And it became a bit us and them. Do you feel that the club weren't acting in a professional manner at times? Well, I think, yeah, that if, if you're doing a professional job, then, you know, the other side of that bargain is that you get paid to do it. So, you know, that's it. if that pay starts arriving late, then that's the kind of ultimate kind of, that's when that bargain's not being upheld at one end, right? And um, And then that's when you start calling the whole relationship into question. When it came to contract negotiations, you tell a story in the book where you agreed on a certain amount and suddenly when the contract came, that was different. How were the French players treated in comparison to, let's say, the English players or the Pacific Islander players? I think the, the French guys tended to get paid less because, and, and particularly the local guys because they're very tied to the area. So, and I think that's the case with a lot of teams. It's like if if you're a young guy, an academy team, you know, say you're an academy guy, you'll probably be less able to demand a salary than than a guy, you know, who might be your age, another academy player, but say he's moving from somewhere else. You know, the team needs to make that appealing for them to move there. So I suppose if any foreigner or any player who comes from somewhere else. It's the onus is on the club to kind of pay them more to bring them in. Whereas, yeah, a local guy, a French guy, they um, they kind of have less bargaining power in that respect. And they actually negotiated their contracts with, he was our straight conditioner, but he really was doing kind of a whole host of 
other things and not much strict conditioning, but he actually did the negotiations with the French guys and he's pretty tough on them. The contract negotiations were so tough or were so, let's say, maybe unfair that one player actually upped and left in the middle of the night. Do you want to tell us about that? <laughs> yeah, he, well, that was, again, down to not being able to get promoted. So uh, he, he was actually our highest paid player and um, he's a big, big number eight. And uh, we, well, I got back to Rouen the night before, um, well, yeah, the evening before pre-season started. And I saw him really briefly because uh, we all lived in the same sort of block of uh, houses and apartments. And we had a chat and I was like, oh, you know, nice to see you. How are you doing? And then the next day, it was like he was gone. His house was empty. And, uh, and basically, because we'd not been able to get promoted, him and his agent had found him a contract at another team that was for a better, I think it was a better deal. And, uh, down in the south, and he just packed up and packed up and left. So it was kind of down to the yeah, it was down to that sort of the club's end of the bargain not being held up, in that we were signed to play to get promoted. And when we couldn't do that, he was like, right, get me out of here, and just pulled the parachute. In terms of a lot of guys you played with, you spoke about some guys would pretend maybe to be injured on the sideline. Now I know there's no way to really to gauge that and how injured they were, but you also spoke about how they didn't follow training plans or um there's actually one story which i found incredible that when you finally started kind of keeping a nutrition diet or a nutrition diary one guy was found out to have a kit kat for breakfast and <laughs> it does like i mean that must have made it very difficult for you to buy in fully to the dream that they were trying to sell you i think um part of it and you, you, you kind of come to realise that there are loads of guys who aren't kind of keeping their end of the bargain up and that happens up the, you know, that happens in other levels of, of rugby as well. That happens higher up because at the end of the day, pe- people aren't that bothered. I think my point was actually like, people aren't that bothered as long as you sort of produce on the pitch and they will kind of turn a blind eye to things like that as long as you're doing all right for the most part. But yeah, the, um, the French approach to nutrition was hilarious so there were there were loads of guys who were doing similar things there was one guy who was making like a bottle of hot chocolate dipping cookies in it that's his breakfast and <laughs> you know it, it just it's just not something that culturally they 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 do in the same way as we do over here so that's why that whole food diary thing it really threw everybody they were like well hang on like why why do you care and then you know then they were all <laughs> they're all being told what they're doing was ridiculous which it was but um, it's just not something that's that's part of the game over there in the same way that it is over in the UK or in Ireland but I mean a Kit Kat for breakfast that's what you kind of expect from someone in college who woke up late after a night out for a lecture you don't expect <laughs> it from I suppose a professional sportsman <laughs> yeah true you talk a lot in the book about the culture surrounding drug use and um, you touch on doping a little bit what really shocked me was the system they had for testing around it in France do you want to tell us about that yeah I mean it was always slightly opaque to us because obviously there was sort of vocabulary that particularly early on we we weren't really certain what, what was being asked of us but the the first sort of they tended not to test too often in the regular season and then if you got to the playoffs, then you'd suddenly you know, get tested a lot after games. So uh, my experiences in England of testing are kind of after games, obviously you're there, you go in and 
sometimes it takes ages, you know, for someone to give a sample, and that definitely happens quite often. Um, if someone comes to training, then they come, they kind of read five names out or have many people they want, and then they don't let you out of their sight until you've given your sample. And in France, you know, the first kind of funny one was when, uh, yeah, a load of guys, had, we'd had a week off, so if you haven't been to Amsterdam, I think they'd enjoyed a few brownies, things like that. And then the um, testers came to training and and said, you know, oh, we're here. But they, they didn't do what you think you'd do in England, which is, you know, um, grab five people and, and don't let them out of their sight. They were like, okay, we're going to go inside and set up. And then we'll we'll call you in, and so you know they went inside, and anyone who was sort of compromised was like, right, I'm out of it. So they they just legged it. Um, and after that, we were definitely kind of scrutinised a bit more. So we had testers come back a bit more regularly, but they were still pretty lax. I mean, they came and tested the whole squad um, after training one day, and like later in the year, and uh, there was. But they hadn't, because they hadn't sort of alerted anyone to being there, a load of the lads were playing touch to warm up, which means you can't then give a sample for a couple of hours because you like this, the sample is invalid for some reason. So those guys actually like went home, had a shower, came back. And you're like, well, you know, this is ridiculous. It's, it's just not how a sort of, it's not what you're used to from antidoping. And in terms of what, those tests would find do you think it would just be recreational drugs that would have been let's say a problem at that level or maybe something a bit more sinister for want of a word no well it's it's an interesting one because um you know you sometimes hear things or you know uh, there's the sort of whispers of people doing things uh, other teams and things but I, i've genuinely never seen or you know anyone in my team ever use anything performance enhancing i've never seen it happen i think that the things i've seen people do a lot more and more kind of prescription things like strong painkillers and um and things like that that they're you know that are kind of easily available and because people are in a lot of pain <laughs> they they start taking them and um i think that's that's the thing i've seen i've not actually seen anybody um use anything like you know performance enhancing has the system of testing improved since you've left, or have you heard anything? I don't. I don't know. Um, I haven't. I haven't actually heard anything. So, I, I think it's pretty similar. There was something in the newspaper maybe when we were there, and it was and it was with um, it was a sort of anonymous top fourteen physio, and he said something, but it was more around recreationals than than anything performance enhancing. I, I've I've genuinely never really seen it happen. Looking at your time as a whole with Ruan, how would you say you were treated overall? Well, I think socially, um, and, and particularly when we first got there, when people were a bit, they could have been quite wary of us. And um, socially, everyone was lovely. You know, like everyone was really friendly. We'd, we'd go around to people's places for dinner and uh, we'd hang around after games. And we used to have a really nice um, atmosphere in that respect i think it was the the only thing was in this last season when things turned a bit sour with the finances and uh, and the kind of inability to get promoted leading to other kind of problems but i'd say for the most part yeah we're, we're treated pretty well last season brought about a new president as well in the club and i suppose i was kind of amazed by how quickly that coup took place there's a lot said about the player power in france especially in the the top clubs but 
did you see that player power in Rouen or was it more the coaches had all the power? No, I'd say in rugby, I think I'm sick at that level. Our most valuable employee was the coach. So he definitely had the kind of, he, he was definitely sort of king of the castle. Whereas, yeah, if you look at football, obviously, where the, the money that the players are on and the fact that there's loads of them and, you know, all the sort of other things that come with it, they've got big profiles. They've, they've certainly got the sort of power in that relationship. Whereas I think, yeah, French teams, they've got the president and then, um, and then there's the coach. But there's definitely a big president culture in France. So the, um, you know, and you see that with the top, the top division there, the coaches change a lot. And that's, you know, that's because sort of capricious owner sort of fires and hires whenever he likes. You spent four years under Richard Hill as coach there. Did he read the book? Uh, yeah, he read, he, read an early, um, he read an early copy or an early draft. Um, and we had a chat on the phone about it. And then uh, I was hoping to actually go to their promotion side of which was probably about a year ago now. But, um, or maybe it was two years ago. No, it was one year ago, for sure. But I was, um, I was on a stag do, so I can, <laughs> so I tried, I tried to see if I could make both. It was on the Friday night, but, um, but I couldn't, yeah. But I'd love to go, I'd love to go back and watch the game. He's still there. But was he happy with your portrayal of him as a coach? Yeah, I don't think he, I've not heard anything, um, I've not heard anything, uh, kind of from him in that respect. I think what I tried to do was, because I'm kind of talking about other people in the book, I tried to kind of turn that lens on myself as well. I think if you're going to you're going to write something and you're going to talk about other people, I think you need to be happy to kind of hold that mirror up to yourself and, and be kind of honest about your own shortcomings at the same time. So I think that's... Uh, I, I tried to do that. I suppose, though, at the end of the day, it is what it is and you're just telling the story. Yeah, I think... That, that's kind of how I approached it when I was writing down. I was like, well, these things did happen. Um, and, you know, my opinion is as maybe, but, you know, when, when things have happened, they have happened. And you know, like you say, that is, that is that. At the end of the book, you come to the realisation that you don't want to play anymore. Did that come as a shock to you when you realised that? No, I think before I went to France, I talked about it a little bit at the beginning. I, I'd been playing in the championship and I, I'm not actually, I kind of got to my kind of mid twenties and I was thinking like, look, you know, this is kind of unsustainable as a, as a career, you know, it's not, it's not, um, it's looking unlikely, you know, you're going to get to step up to kind of big leagues and getting a bit older, you're not going to earn loads of money at this level. So, you know, what are you doing? I got this offer to go to France. So that, that kind of going to France, it got, it let me do a load of other things. It let me learn French. It let me have this great experience and, be a part of this thing but it that final year because we couldn't get promoted I was thinking oh, I've really I've really wasted a year here and I, and I don't have many left you know, of playing rugby and um yeah so I think it, France definitely was a sort of uh, it let me prolong what I was doing in a really good way because it gave me loads of other other things but actually yeah by the last year I was thinking right like I'm, I'm kind of ready to move on from this so the last year really just sort of confirmed it. When you were told that the club wasn't going to offer you another contract, I'm sure it was upsetting up to a point, but was it almost more of a relief to take that decision out of your hands? It's a bit of both because I, I was definitely thinking like I wouldn't accept a contract even if it was offered to me. And I was thinking I'd probably just stop playing. But um, 
yeah, but obviously anytime anyone's like, look, you know, there's, there's no contract, then that is, a, <laughs> yeah, that is, that isn't a nice thing to hear, even though it's what I was kind of expecting and, and I kind of agreed. So it's, it definitely was like a little bit of a kick in the nuts, but, um, yeah, we were both in the same place on that. Were there a lot of similarities to championship life to life in the lower tiers in French rugby? Yeah, um, I think there's there's loads of things. So in terms of the sort of care that you got, so in the first place we had, yeah, we had one physio the whole time I was there and that's that similar at Plymouth Albion when I was there. And um, It kind of doesn't matter how, how kind of competent or caring that person is because they often are both those things. It's that they've just got an enormous amount of work to do. Uh, we, you know, we had in France, we had an A and B team, so there's sort of fifty odd players, maybe, or you know, around fifty players, and um, you know, he'd be there for training. There's guys from both teams trying to get, trying to get a rub, trying to get strapped, trying to do all these things, and and this is a guy who also had had his own kind of physio practice that he was a part of and would work in the day. I, I just couldn't believe how much work he had to do. So I think it's th- those sorts of guys, those support staff, the conditioners. Um, they get lent on like really heavily. So the last year in France, the fourth season, we had two English conditioners come over and they were on absolute peanuts to do their job. So they're quite young. They got to kind of run the programme at a pro team. But and it was an opportunity they wouldn't have got to get. They wouldn't they wouldn't have had that opportunity in England at all. But it meant that, you know, they had to take an absolute minuscule salary and really live on the breadline. So I think that's where the, the sort of similarities are. Championship teams, there are loads of guys, you know, conditioners, physios, those kind of those support guys. They're really stretched, and then obviously that kind of filters down to the players, where you your access to kind of care and expertise is is way more limited than someone at the top level. With all your experience of Rouen and playing in the different championship clubs, and I know you were spent a year over in Sydney as well. One question that came in on Twitter was, would you have traded all your experiences there to be a one-club man in the Premiership? I don't know. I think that's that's a hard one. I mean, I, I always quite liked the idea of getting different experience. I always wanted, like even when I was a young guy um, playing academy rugby, I always fancied the idea of going over to France. So, I mean, yeah, I'd, I'd have loved to play Premiership rugby. You don't like, you know, that would have been great. But I'm, I don't um, regret my own experience because I think if you, if he did, that'd be quite a sorry position. Being injured is very tough for a player at any time. But it seemed with Ruan, when you were injured, you were very much on your own. I don't want to say ostracised, but certainly if you were living at home and you were injured and a team went away for a weekend game, you'd have friends and family around. Did you find being injured in France was a very, very tough time mentally? Yeah, yeah, it was pretty difficult. Cause the um, I was I actually got kind of lucky that one of the other English guys I got on really well with uh, he got injured at the same time. I don't so, think I don't think he'd say he was lucky. Yeah, no, exactly. Yeah. Um, well, we got we got injured in the same game, and um, yeah, we uh, it, the thing was once the new president took over the team at the end of the season, particularly kind of around playoff time. You start playing teams that are sort of further and further away. Uh, you know the, that's how the sort of league structure pans out. But it meant the team were going, you know, Rouen's in the sort of north of France, like not far from the coast. And actually, we were playing teams that are right down in the south, maybe even in the Pyrenees, like Tar, you know, near Tarbes or um, near Po. And so the team—it was a real marathon to get there. It was kind of two hours to Paris, then getting a train that might be 
six, seven hours and then getting another bus after that train journey. So the team actually started leaving two days before a game and doing the team run down there the day before. But yeah, it meant for us to, we were kind of marooned in Rouen for, you know, three days on our own every, you know, every other weekend. And we did, we did have a bit of physical work that we were sort of set to do. There were a couple of the other French guys around as well that we might catch up with, but it was it was slightly bizarre. You're like, well, I kind of can't go anywhere because I've got my things to do, but there is no one here. And it, it was a sort of slightly odd thing. We obviously went out we went out drinking a couple of times, and we went down to Paris, like uh, you know, did some sort of touristy things in the area, which was, which was great. But yeah, it was very strange. Your time in France saw you come across a lot of different players, um, certainly of different caliber. You tell stories of some guys that came up through the ranks and who were brilliant. And let's face it, there were other guys that, with all intents and purposes, they were just flat out useless. Did you find it difficult having to play with both sets of players? I think like when you get to play, when you play with really good players, in my experience, like it, it, it just makes everything easier for you because you know every pass they throw you is better and they, they maybe they create opportunities for you and they talk to you so in defense maybe you can be really kind of secure that they're going to do what their role is whereas with someone who's maybe not so good yeah you, you're kind of always thinking like well where's he going to throw this ball or you know is he there i don't know if he's on you know covering him on the inside or you know, there's all these kind of um that i feel, i feel like that's the kind of difference like a, a good player gives you like security and the ability to kind of um, do your own job, whereas someone who's maybe not so good is is going to kind of cause you to struggle. Yeah, I'm sure I've caused a few people to struggle myself. Did you come up against anybody who you thought this guy is phenomenal? Yeah, yeah, we had um, quite often like some of the other teams, and you you kind of catch guys that they might be on the kind of way up where they're a young guy and they're they're doing really well. So there's a couple of guys we had at Rouen who are now in the top fourteen and. Um, there are a couple of guys. Other, uh, the other, the other way you catch them, sorry, is when they're kind of maybe a top fourteen player that's kind of fallen on hard times, or you know, someone who's a bit older and is is sort of winding down a bit, but they're still really good. I mean, there's a guy at Limoges on the wing, and he's he's a like little Tongan guy, and he made these he, he made a few big breaks against us. I can't remember if he scored, but he was just absolute like you know grease lightning. I think he'd been at Racing, but. Yeah, he, I, I don't know what happened there, but they'd released him and the only kind of deal he could pick up was in Federal Loon for Limoges. But there were there were just the odd guy. You know, oh, wow, yeah. <laughs> You're pretty sharp, particularly on the wing where, you know, someone might just be an amazing athlete stood on the end of, a, of you know, like not that great a team. So as a book, it was one I really enjoyed reading because it offered a completely different insight into life and rugby. If someone wanted to read a book, where can they pick it up? Yeah, um, it's it's only available on Amazon at the moment, so it's been exclusive to them uh, since it came out. But I'm gonna look into. There's a few different options, maybe like try and get into bookshops and things, which I'd love to see it do that. But yeah, for the moment, it's only available on Amazon. Fringes: Life on the Edge of Professional Rugby. Well, look, it's a book I really enjoyed. Um, really enjoyed talking about it as well. Lots of different things in it, especially. For those who don't want to read kind of the typical rugby autobiography, I suppose this is a real, really good insight, I suppose, into life in the lower tiers playing in France. But Ben, thanks a million for coming on the podcast. It was great to chat to you about everything. Hey, thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it. No problem. And folks, thanks a million for listening.